The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. The award-winning podcast that's never won an award. It's like if a camera flash had a sound. Join the conversation on our social media. Another fun-filled and exciting episode. You're listening to Just Some Podcast. And here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners, maybe someday soon to be Just Some Podcast for Healthcare, maybe, I don't know, but exciting episode coming up. It's a a big two-parter, Ben. Yeah, it's going to tackle this in two pieces because we thought, and after we got into the research part of things, it's like there's just so much information that we needed to uh, going to break it up into two pieces so we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger you know a to be continued kind of you know when you watch those tv shows well and to be to be fair if anybody watches letter kenny they're going to get that joke but to be fair to the subject it's it's pressing it's current and it is important so i i felt like we weren't going to do it justice and i i think ben felt the same way that this topic is so important and it's so present now that we, we really need to do a decent job. And on top of that, we just get to stretch your, your misery over two episodes now. Like we just get to just punch in the face, boom, two black eyes, unlike the usual one. Yeah, no time to heal between the two, just pow, pow. Exactly. We're, uh, we're also both keeping out of the corner of our eyes a uh, watch on the divisional playoff games for the NFL. So I think I'm as shocked as anybody else what's going on, but it is what it is. So how's your week been, Ben? You know, it wasn't too terribly bad. We're having a quick turnaround on recording because I'm going to go on vacation next week, but so I've been, you know, making sure I see all my patients this last week and the next couple of days. How's your week? So far, so good. In traditional unexpected weather patterns, we were told we were going to get a couple inches of snow and yeah, I'd say they were off by about four to five inches so far. So eh, we're dealing with that, but it's everybody's safe and overall it's not been too bad. Most weathermen are male, so, you know, it was just a incorrect, <clears throat> you know. Incorrect, uh, yeah, adjustment of fire there. One of my favorite quotes ever about this is by the comedian Lewis Black, who was talking about he was doing a show. I think he was doing a show anyways, that the weatherman's prediction of weather or uh, snow was off by 12 inches. And he said, this is the only job you could be that wrong, that if this guy had been a contractor and built a house with a roof that was 12 inches uh, wrong, that he'd be in jail. And I was like, wow, he's completely right. Yeah, I've said that, particularly in what we do taking care of patients it's like could you imagine if we were wrong 30 to 40 percent of the time or even more than that i mean we wouldn't have any damn patients to see wait you're right more than 30 to 40 oh wait a second how do you do that education my dear thomas education sir oh well i can't wait to find where do i find that stuff <laughs> was i sick that day in nurse practitioner school that they talked about education oh okay this podcast is a great educational tool right i mean we i agree i think it's educational but, you know, that guy who gave us one star, apparently, I'm assuming it was a guy. It very well could have been a girl. As a matter of fact, I think it might have been a girl based on some of the feedback I've seen. But I, I don't know because they didn't tell us anything. Oh, you're just never let that, let, let that go, are you? No, I'll let it go. It, it's it's fair. That's, that's what they felt. And I'm okay with that. I just, I wish I knew why. But anyways, since we were talking about ratings and people discussing us on social media, Ben, what do you feel like you have to do right now? Well, we need to do our social media shout out, Tom. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. You can email us. Tell us about why you give us that one star rating, admin at justsomepodcast.com. 
com. Tom, what else can they do? Well, first of all, they can do all those reviews and ratings on all the social media sites. They can spread us around to all their friends and family. They can lie and say we're really good at what we do. Then <laughs> they can go to our website. They can click on our affiliate link, and they can use that affiliate link to do any of their shopping on Amazon. It's free and it's quick. But please make sure that you have nothing in your bucket prior to using the affiliate link. If you do, just make sure you put it on your save list, then go back with the affiliate link and then add it to the bucket because then it will be tagged to us. But that's really helpful. We're not looking for uh, to be millionaires. Well, I am, but not today or not because of the affiliate link. But anything you can do will help the show out and we would appreciate it. And I wanted to take a few minutes before we get into our stories you may have missed to talk about another podcast that I'm a huge fan of. Um, I know you've not had a chance to listen to it yet, but I, I think I've sold you on it talking in uh, pre-production yeah i honestly i i have heard of it as a matter of fact i know we've talked about it before but just the more and more we've discussed it the more and more i'm looking forward to listening to some episodes so the podcast that we're talking about that i really enjoy is pop psych 101 and what it is is they look at mental health aspects in popular culture so movies tv books things of that nature they've covered like the Fight Club, they've covered 13 Reasons Why, they've covered <laughs> Christmas Carol, was one of their more recent episodes. And so it is a licensed therapist, and his name is Ryan, and then it is a patient, not Ryan's patient, but a patient, Mike. And so it's kind of a interesting perspective on how they portray mental health in all these popular culture. So it's kind of like you and I, like you're an actual nurse practitioner <laughs> and I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express and I just play one on television. So, I mean, it's very similar to that, correct? Yeah. You're a real nurse practitioner. I've seen your... Uh, that's <laughs> Yes, Ben had to deal with me while I was prepping for tests and all that stuff. I am, in fact, a uh, licensed nurse practitioner, but I, sometimes I feel like I'm playing one on television. So it's it's okay. It is what it is. It's it's a great job. I just feel like I'm still learning every day and just trying to move forwards. But if you are interested in listening to other podcasts along with ours, because obviously you're listening to ours if you're listening to our voice right now. You can listen to Pop Psych 101. I really do. I truly, truly do enjoy it. It's one of the things that I do listen to on my commutes back and forth to work. Yeah, just so you know, they haven't given us a shout out or anything like that, though if they want to, please do so. But we do genuinely enjoy listening to other people and learning more about our craft. And he has just gone on and on about Pop Psych. And I just... I agree with him. I think it was time that we just gave him some some props. So way to go, Pop Psych. Can't wait to listen to you. But Ben, I, I think it's time to get into the stories. That's right. So stories that you may have missed. And again, this is one that probably hasn't been missed by a whole lot of people. This is effective January 1st of 2019. Hospitals have to begin publishing their prices online. Now, this was done at the complying with the Trump administration order to post all their list prices for all their services, which theoretically would offer consumers transparency to see if they would get a better price at another hospital. However, the list prices are very similar to what you would consider to be like a sticker price on a vehicle. And Tom, do you ever pay sticker price for a vehicle? Every time. I'm like that episode of King of the Hill where he thinks he's getting the special deal because he doesn't have to hassle with the guy and then nobody else wants to tell him that he's getting ripped off. I'm that guy. No, I'm kidding. I, I like I I will argue about the proper way to tie your shoes. So trust me, I am not going in there paying sticker price. Exactly. And that's kind of what these are. This does not take into consideration the negotiations between hospitals and insurance companies and things of that nature. And so very rarely would pay, anybody actually pay sticker price for a car. The president of the Greater New York Hospital Association was quoted in the article as saying 299% of the consuming public, this data will be of limited utility, basically meaningless. So what you're saying is the government and the good idea fairy got together. They decided on something else yet again that they are forcing us to do that was unnecessary, and it's just making things worse. That's basically the synopsis of what I just heard, right? I don't know if it's necessarily making it worse as much as if you were to uh, give your patient discharge instructions in German. would sound like it's going to be a, just about as effective as this is currently. So futile. 
I guess is what I should have said. Tom, I do think that it is basically futile. I mean, for example, Vanderbilt University had to, of course, list their prices online. They listed a charge of $42,569 for a cardiology procedure described as, and I'm quoting, HC space PTC space CLOS space PAT space DUCT space ART, which anybody in the medical field could somewhat decipher that, that obviously it looks like it's a closing of the patent ductus arteriosus, but the general public is not going to know what that is. And if another hospital has a slightly different acronym or they put the acronym in a different order, the people that have no idea what they're talking about, nor should they be comparing prices at that point, but they're going to try, are not going to be able to get an accurate representation. So again, futile. Futile is a good word. I like that. You ready to jump into the main topic? I know we kind of touched on it briefly at the beginning of the show. We didn't really go into detail of what we're going to cover. Yeah, Ben. I think, again, I mean, of course we're going to try and have fun and joke a little bit, but this is going to be an extremely – well, it's a serious topic. I, I know for both of us, but in some ways you could say I'm in the middle of ground zero for this. And we're going to be talking about opioid addiction and the opioid crisis that's currently going on in America. Yeah, I mean, obviously it is on everybody's mind as far as it's in the news, it's in Facebook feeds, you see it all kind of all over the place, you see all these treatment centers popping up as well. So Tom and I kind of wanted to focus the first half of the two-part episode is going to kind of be a history of opioids and kind of what has happened to get us to this point. I will specify a disclaimer. These are our opinions. These are not opinions of anybody else or anybody entities that we work for. I know we put that disclaimer at the beginning of the show, but I want to stress that on this as well. These are basically just Tom and I's thoughts on what has gotten us to this point in the opioid epidemic. Correct. This is just our view. Uh, again, I'm sure people have listened to the show at some point or possibly listened to the show at some point. We have a wide and varied background and it's just kind of the way we've seen things and the history of the drug and the leading of the drug till now. I'd also like to put out another disclaimer. So we are not addiction specialists. If there are specific questions, we will try and answer some stuff. But to be fair, we are not addiction specialists. I have some training I just attended from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. However, in no way I am not advocating that I am an addiction specialist, I am telling you, <laughs> I have some minor information that is specific to this topic. If you need specific information or treatment advice or anything like that, you need to find an addiction specialist and talk to them. That's what I would say. And that's not just, that goes for nurse practitioners, physicians, PAs, nurses, whoever's listening to this. Patients, I mean, I would include patients in that list too, that yeah, if there's concerns, then you need to visit with your primary care provider. Obviously, you don't don't take anything that we're going to say over the next two episodes as medical advice. Exactly. And, and that's just because the more I think we both found into it, first of all, neither one of us would have said we were addiction specialists prior to this, but the depth of this topic is really, truly incredible. And it is literally changing sometimes day to day. So to get the full value of this information, if there is a in-depth question about treatment options, now we can give you some basic information that are facts, like we're going to talk about some dates, things happened, that's not it for debate, that's fine. But if you're looking at concrete treatment options, which is probably going to be more applicable to our second episode, then again, I just want to be clear for everybody to seek the treatment of a certified specialist in this field. Well, Tom, do you want to jump into the history? Because I know you kind of did more of the history part of things. Yeah, I and I had a uh, pretty good time doing that. So first of all, I just kind of want to discuss for everybody what exactly is an opioid or an opiate or a narcotic, because actually they're different. Not that it really matters anymore, but I'll tell you about that here in a second. So first of all, opiates are technically a naturally occurring compound in a medication from the opium poppy plant or just opium plant. Opioid, with a D, is a synthetically made medicine that is going to hit one of the opiate receptors. So even though people use opiate and opioid interchangeably, and technically now most medicines are all synthetic anyway, so you can, there is a, a technical difference. Narcotics is actually the term for any of the classes of drugs that can create a, a certain level of anesthesia, and that's why they're all kind of termed under that. 
Now, when you're saying narcotics, then you're basically would would that be the same as controlled substances? And so, like our Schedule Two through or Schedule One, which we can't prescribe, Schedule Two through Schedule Five. So even like your Ambien things of that nature, or are narcotics specifically to just like Schedule Two and opioids and things of that nature? Well, from the definition I read, yeah, those would still be narcotics. But to be fair, <laughs> again, there that is most medical literature doesn't even like the term narcotics because it's kind of become a bastardized term. Just about anything in some way can be defined as a narcotic. So they don't really use that. They try to use a specific class like benzodiazepine or an opiate. So technically they're all sort of narcotics, but that's kind of where we're at now. So one of the important things, and this is going to apply again a little further down the line for treatment options and some of the dangers of why opioids are so bad is uh, the way they act on the human body. And now we're not going to get to an entire physiology lesson here, but basically they are all going to act on a receptor for the opiates. Now, the three main pain receptors that are going to be affected. And again, I'm not a pain specialist. They are probably, if one of them did listen, which would one be awesome, but two, they'd probably have a little altering of what I'm about to say. The main receptors in your brain are going to be the the mu, the kappa, and the delta receptors. Most opiates are going to act on the mu receptor. And there is some interaction with kappa and delta, but very little. And that is important for one specific reason. Most of the interaction with the mu receptor is also going to have a possible side effect of interfering with your respiratory drive. So that's why when we give you those medications like morphine and it starts making your respiratory drive go down, that's because it's acting. Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but physiologically in your brain chemistry, it's hitting that mu receptor and possibly in the future, again, next episode, they're, they're looking at maybe some medications that are just as effective, but they're hitting other receptors. So that's, that's kind of the old school, like what we're talking about. Those are the drugs that are affecting us today. And there's so much more in depth in just that like it, it was incredible. I was like, wow, we could have literally done an hour on just receptor yeah. based medicine. And so I was like, holy cow. So let's uh let's talk a little bit about the brief history in Tom's view <laughs> of opium to oxycotton. And I put that on there because I'm going to start pretty far back, Ben. Jump into the wayback machine here. Yeah, yes, the uh, uh, patent pending wayback machine. Ben, go ahead. Give me an idea. How far back do you think people were dealing with opium? Um, I'm going to say 1800s. You would be off by only a couple thousand years. Oh, well, good. Just a bit right. <laughs> Just a bit outside. I don't know how they're laying off pitches this close. <laughs> so basically, the uh, it's completely agreed upon at this point that as far back as 3400 BC, 3400 BC, that poppy was being cultivated in Mesopotamia, primarily by the Sumerians and Assyrians, but a few other cultures. So I was just a little bit off, like 5,000 years. Yeah, just just a little bit. But so I should tell you, um, whenever someone's like, how did we get to this crisis? I'm about to discuss it briefly, but this crisis has been around for a minute. Okay, so we just have bigger toys than they did back then. Fast forward just a tad, about 3,000 years, to 400 BC. Approximately 460 BC, Hippocrates himself wrote about warning people on the use of opium. He wrote about it's clear it has some value for helping with pain, but that people seem to use it way too much. Though he doesn't specifically talk about how it was, but most likely ingested just by eating at that point. But Hippocrates himself, 460 BC. Hmm. I just, it, it just like, wow. Like yeah, that's how, why are people surprised <laughs> when like, I can't believe this is a problem. Well, if we listen to Hippocrates. Well, there's a lot more we could have done, but I'm pretty sure he also thought that the brain cooled the blood and the heart was where thinking was done. Or no, I was some other Greek philosopher or something, but still, they were just a tad off on that as well. So perhaps we shouldn't give him too much credit for what we're doing. And I can't say Hippocrates without doing a Bill and Ted reference, you know, Hippocrates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Old Socrates. Socrates. Frude, Sigmund Frude. I love Bill and Ted. I actually, side vent here, 
I actually heard that they're looking at making another one. I heard that. Like with with the original actors, yeah. Yes, with the original actors, another Bill and Ted. Oh my god. I'd be sitting uh, yeah, I'd be going opening night. I love that stuff. So anyways, let's get back to this. So just a little while later, you know, most people, when they think of opium or poppy, I should say, I know with the recent wars we've had the last 17 years, you know, people think of Afghanistan and stuff, but that's not naturally where it came from. That was introduced in 330 BC by Alexander the Great. So that stuff was getting spread everywhere. People back then were loving the stuff. Fast forward just a tad from 330 BC to 1680. I know a little bit happened in between, but. You know, as far as we're concerned, no biggie. So 1680, something called laudanum was basically invented. Have you ever heard of laudanum? I have not, no. So if you have watched any Western movies, you might have seen one of the bar saloons or uh, women in the show talking about they needed some laudanum. Laudanum was a mixture of opium and alcohol. Well, there you go then. That's a hell of a party. Yes. As one physician I listened to said, it was either A, going to make you not hurt or B, make you not care. But (laughs) (laughs) either way, I guess it's effective at that point. Yes. Yes. That that was totally true. So if you've watched Tombstone or Wyatt Earp, you will hear some somebody one of the females talking about it and that's the substance so that's pretty amazing uh that that was even around 1799 china the entire country banned it like it had become such a problem in 1799 china just said uh yeah you you can't even you can't even have poppy around anymore so that that was a problem kind of go for it a little for it this is where we're going to start getting into stuff people are going to recognize. 1803, morphine was synthesized in Germany. Like, we, some chemist had figured out, hey, what is what makes opium super awesome? Because they were smoking it, they are eating it, they are doing all sorts of stuff. He said, hey, can we just use this as a medicine where you don't have to illegally get opium? And they found it morphine. And they actually called it, I think it was God's Miracle, and people believed it was the perfect drug. Hmm. The perfect. And that and that's kind of why morphine is considered like the base of when we have morphine equivalents and stuff like that. It's because it's the primary drug that has always been around for use in treatment. Interesting. I did not know that. See, look at that. We're all learning something today. 1839, the opium wars began because one country said they didn't want it anymore. And England's like, oh, yes, you do. And so, so the opium wars were fought and China lost – an entire city and region called Hong Kong. You may have heard of that before. I, it just, that, this is just the history of the stuff. And I'm like, wow. Huh. So 1853, a Dr. Alex Wood of Scotland invents injectable morphine. So if it wasn't a big enough problem before, now. Let's mainline it. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, that wasn't a problem before, but now. Here we go. So now we're getting a little more modern here with some of the stuff that people are going to notice. And just like I said, I just want someone to get some flavor of what we're dealing with here. 1898, heroin is synthesized. Or uh, I'm sorry, 1874, heroin is synthesized. But in 1898, the Bayer Company is selling heroin as a way to get off morphine. Hmm. That would be kind of like, well, here's, I know you're addicted to hydrocodone, so we're going to give you some Percocet instead. Exactly. They assumed, uh, from what I can tell, again, I'm not a historian in this area, or maybe if somebody is, I could let us know. But basically, it seems like they assumed that since it was synthesized from the first thing, that it must be safer. I don't know why that was the linear thought process, but that's what it seemed to be. They were... they were also selling heroin as everything. Bear Company, if you could get heroin, you were getting – they were selling it. Like child, child cough syrup, heroin. Yeah. I, I Just like, whoa, they couldn't figure out why that was a problem. Yeah, so it didn't take long. 1898 when they started doing that. By 1905, Congress said no. Like we are done. <laughs> so Congress come out of their heroin stupor to ban heroin. Yeah, it only took seven years, but they were like, yeah, there's a problem here. 1914 was the Harrison Act when basically drugs were outlawed or they – I shouldn't say outlawed. They were they were made illegal for sale without a prescription. I mean I'm oversimplifying it, but that's what it was. 1925, because of the, the Harrison Act – and this will kind of lead into what we're about to talk through. But you're like by 1925, so nine years, major cities were becoming black market centers for illegal drugs because you can no longer just buy it at Walmart. Not that that existed back then, but you get my point. Now that it was controlled and the government had their finger in that pie, it's going to pop up somewhere else. And that's that's another thing that people need to recognize throughout these two episodes is – 
just because we have done one thing does not mean that something else will not happen. Right. All right. There is no quick, easy fix to this problem. Unfortunately not. Yeah. So Ben, now that I have given everybody the where in the world is Carmen San Diego version of what is going on with the opium, why don't you go ahead and lead us into what we're going to be talking about next? When Tom and I talked about this, we talked about kind of wanting to talk about how did we get to where we're currently at? Tom was able to give us a good history of opium and opioids, but we kind of wanted to talk about specifically the United States and how we are in this quote-unquote opioid epidemic. And through our research, through conferences that I've attended and conferences that Tom's attended, we have kind of pinpointed what we consider to be kind of four things that have kind of led to this. Now, this is not to say we're putting blame on anybody in particular, and this is not to say that there are not bad providers out there that are running pill mills. I mean, you can help Google pill mills and you can find numerous articles in regards to you know providers losing their license because they prescribe medication too much. So yeah, again, this is not to pinpoint it in any particular place as far as blame, but this is kind of where how we feel like we have progressed to this point. And there were four points that we had kind of examined. We wanted to kind of discuss those further. The first point has to do with drug companies' ability to advertised to the general public. So in 1969, the FDA issued final regulations for prescription drug advertising and stipulated that they had to have certain aspects. They had to be uh, not false or misleading, which, you know, we'll delve into that in a little bit. Uh, they had to present a fair balance of information describing both the risks and benefits of drugs, include facts that are material to the product's advertised uses, and include a brief summary that mentions the risk described in the product's labeling. So now if you think back to like television commercials that you see for drugs, you'll see that's why they risk, or that's why they list all the risk factors and, and the benefits and things of that nature. During the 80s, the political climate. Oh, I just wanted to point out, Ben, that first of all, I think it's pretty common sense, like how we came about to, the, to hey, we really want to be able to advertise our drugs on national television. And it's so dangerous that America, it's it's dangerous in one way at least, but it's considered so dangerous by most places that America's one of only two countries that even allow it. And yes. One of two. Countries in the entire world. One of two. The other one being New Zealand. Yeah, which cracks me up because I know Kiwis are usually really pragmatic people. And honestly, that's probably why they do it. They're like, eh, I guess if you're going to OD, that's your fault. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's the Kiwi National Board's thoughts. But I mean, when a country like Libya... Is like, whoa, that is way too dangerous. You can't do that on television. I mean, sure, you can shoot somebody, but you can't go around selling drugs on television. When that is going on, but we allow it, perhaps that's an issue. Perhaps, yes. And I actually did some research before the show on New Zealand. They don't have a huge opioid problem right now. They have had some opioid overdoses, but not to the extent of, of the United States. And they're trying to learn from what the United States has done. The other thing with New Zealand, though, is they have universal health care. So I don't know that they have quite as much patients who are trying to obtain the drugs for illicit means. Yeah, I... Most countries do have some kind of form of universal health care. I've never personally been to New Zealand. I've met multiple people from New Zealand. Kiwis, you guys are great people. I think we're downloaded in New Zealand. If, if you're that one listener in New Zealand, listen to us. Awesome. We love Kiwis. But, and for those that don't know, Kiwi is the term for a person from New Zealand. And no, I don't know why, though I want to learn that now. But basically, they don't have a reason. They have a smaller population there. There's no need for large volumes of information or drugs going out. They just, if they're hurting, they go to the doctor, they get what they need. I mean, it just seems they're also vastly remote from anywhere else. Like drug dealers are not going, hey, I can just hop, skip, jump over to New Zealand and make a quick buck. That's not happening. And like Tom kind of alluded to earlier, the reason that drug companies are able to um, advertise direct to consumers is if you follow the money, if they line the pockets of Congress, then they tend to be more favorable to the pharmaceutical industry. Shocking. And then, of course, the shift into patients starting to become more actively participating in their medical decision-making, so that's kind of how they helped to sell that. In 81, Merck was the, actually the company who ran the first direct-to-consumer advertisement for its pneumococcal vaccine, and then the first broadcast advertisement was in 83, and that was from Boots Pharmaceutical, 
which promoted the lower price of its prescription brand of ibuprofen compared with Motrin. Motrin versus Motrin? What is going to happen next? <laughs> I guess I will say I've not heard of Boots Pharmaceutical until I researched this or their prescription brand of ibuprofen called Rufin, although I don't think that's probably the best name for a medication. Um, I have, however, heard of Motrin and the McNeil Consumer, so I'm going to say I think I knew who won that fight. But not in the name game. Yeah. Rufin takes that hands down. <laughs> uh, okay, so basically what has happened then with this is it has, to some extent, driven us to a pill-based society in that the general population feels like they need a medication to feel better, whether it be pain medication, antibiotics, antidepressants, whatever the case may be, whatever's being advertised on TV. And I don't know about you, Tom, but I do occasionally have patients come in and say, hey, you know what? I saw this medication on TV. Do you think it would work for me? Sometimes they have the disease that it is discussing, sometimes not. <laughs> yes, so. I have had that a few times, and I have had very well and informed patients in some cases. And I've also had patients that were like, hey, I need X medication. And I'm like, that is for whatever, name a, a disease, which you don't have. So that is not an appropriate medication. But I do agree that it completely has, we're fighting a multifaceted war already. And that is just one bleeding, gaping wound is these people are being told day after day after day, you have something wrong and there's a magic pill that'll fix it. And now they're expecting it. Right. And that's, and again, we're not being hypercritical of patients in particular. And we're not saying specific patients. We're talking about society as a whole in the United States. If you look at other countries like the United Kingdom, they very rarely use medications over there because they don't feel like they need to use them as much. I uh, did read an article, and I think I've talked about it before on the show, possibly before. I know I've, I think I've ran it by you before. A woman, an American citizen, but for work reasons or whatever, she was living in, I believe, Germany and got a hysterectomy. A hysterectomy, I mean, that's a major procedure. They gave her ibuprofen and said, hey, this can be kind of hard on your stomach and kidneys. You probably shouldn't take it unless you really need it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a different mentality. Yes, and you can completely see it because she even said, hey, I was so scared. Like, no, I need all these medications. And they're like, nah, take some rest, drink some tea, you'll be fine. And that's what, how the article actually ended was her saying, and guess what, I'm fine. Maybe she needed some boots pharmaceutical roofing. <laughs> Old roofing. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of the first is the ability to advertise directly to consumers. So the second facet that we wanted to look at was how pain became a vital sign. In 1980, catch this Tom, a one paragraph letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine challenged the practice of using opioids only for the relief of acute pain. Catch that. There was the letter to the editor. It wasn't even a study, specifically. It wasn't anything like that. It was it would be like if you wrote your local newspaper and said whatever, and then that is taken as the gospel truth. The authors of the letter, after a retrospective review of their own records, stated that only 4 out of 11,000 of their patients had pain given opioids, had become addicted to them. This letter has been referenced over 600 times in support of using opioids for chronic pain. So one doctor with one review has now changed the course of medical history. As a letter to the editor. So this was not even like peer-reviewed. Yeah. Well, joke's on you. <laughs> I'm going to continue to blow your mind, though, Tom. Here we go. Oh, man. A uh, study published in 1986 in the journal Pain, was based on 38 patients concluded that opioid maintenance therapy can be safe and a more humane alternative to options of surgery or no treatment in patients with, with intractable non-malignant pain. That same year, in their textbook, Narcotic Analgesics and Anesthesiology, the author similarly indicated that opioid therapy in patients with non-malignant pain was not associated with substance abuse or physiologic or I'm sorry, psychologic dependence. Okay, so hold on. First of all, the first journal, the name of the journal was Pain? Yes. That's it. That's it. Because I'm pretty sure I saw a magazine like that one time at the airport, 
in the like the little rack, but it was like in a black wrapper. All I could see was the word pain at the top. I don't think that was talking about uh, analgesia. Well, I think this one was. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say I, you would think they would have a better name than just pain. And But the second, top, second journal, that's a very impressive title, though I would say I think that physician got it wrong. Yeah, I think uh, as we have learned over the last – 30 years, there is definitely risk for substance abuse. And so that kind of started leading us toward trying to reassess patients' pain. So in 2001, the Joint Commission announced new standards for monitoring and treating pain that emphasized the need to perform systematic assessments of patients' pain levels and frequently while hospitalized. It advocated for pain to be monitored similarly to how vital signs were monitored. So pain monitoring increased dramatically and it became known as the fifth vital sign. So it was Jayco that recommended the use of pain for the fifth vital sign. Now, this is not to say that patients don't have pain. You know, we're certainly not saying that. We're not certainly not saying that patients can't have chronic pain either. But unfortunately, the problem with it being assessed as a vital sign is it's very subjective. You know, we have to. And Tom, I don't know if you remember from nursing school, but it was always the pain is what the patient says it is. Correct. And that's what they say because it's very subjective. Now we can look objectively at vitals, other vital signs such as blood pressure and pulse, but pain is the only vital sign that we cannot truly assess without objectively. I guess I should say. Well, and that's definitely one of my problems, and I think most people treating patients with this. I believe the great majority of people are trying to give us a true subjective assessment of what their pain is. However, and I can, I'll can, i speak from both my experience now and my experience in the ER, especially in triage, when you'd be like, okay, so on a scale of 0 to 10, what, what would you rate your pain at now? And while they're laughing and giggling with their friend and texting on their phone, they're like, mm, that's definitely a 10. And you're like, mm, no, it's not. I mean, it, you don't say that, but in your head, you were like, this person is clearly not a 10. I, I will tell you right now, I've been in so much pain, especially with a kidney stone, that if they had said, Tom, there's nothing we can do. We're going to have to put you down like a horse with a broken leg. I would like put the barrel of the gun all the way to my head when you pull the trigger because that's how much pain I'm in. And so I, I it truly disheartens me when we have to write 10 out of 10 as a vital sign or in the chart when we clearly can see that it's not. And maybe one day, years from now, we'll, then we'll be able to more objectively assess pain. But at this point, we are still, we are where we are. Um, it is the fifth vital sign and it has to be assessed and we have to treat it accordingly. But I, well, I guess that's the whole point of this episode is that's part of the problem is it shouldn't be. But anyways, I'm sorry. So that's number two. So we're so we're at pill-based direct-to-consumer advertising. Then we're at pain becoming the fifth vital sign. You know, to this point, providers were still somewhat hesitant to prescribe opioids for long-term pain management because they were concerned about substance abuse and becoming addicted and having issues like that. And along came, in 1995, the medication OxyContin was approved by the FDA. OxyContin. I think I've heard of that one before you have really huh. I, i'm fairly certain i've heard of this oxy that you speak of so oxycontin for those who don't know and uh, you know i guess if we have patients who are listening and may not know what oxycontin is, it is a long-acting pain medication it was designed to initially i think it was designed to to replace or instant release medications and you know to get less pills out in the streets so in 95 it was approved by the fda in 1998, the company who makes OxyContin is Purdue Pharmaceuticals. They began aggressively advertising this medication to providers. Now, I wasn't a provider in 1998, but my understanding by aggressive, they were like, it was the new snake oil. This stuff fixed everything and it had no problem. To an extent, yes. The company created and distributed video called I Got My Life Back, chronicled six patients treated with OxyContin for chronic pain. Now, the other thing that I found interesting about this and what got them in trouble later was Purdue trained its sales representatives that the risk of addiction to OxyContin was less than 1%. And that's a direct quote, correct? That's a direct quote from court cases later on, as we'll discuss. Come to find out that not only was that not true, so therefore it was false and misleading, but they also had found in some of their studies that the percentage was much higher. 
However, because they were trying to get this drug out there, they kind of neglected to mention that to any of the providers, the FDA, or anybody else. And so I think it is fair to say that there were the proverbial pill mills that we've all heard about, that there were physicians that just don't want to listen to their patients bitch, and they were going to prescribe whatever, etc. I, I believe those existed. However, I also truly think that the grand majority of healthcare providers really want to do what's right for their patient, and were being told this information, and they believed it. And so they were prescribing this medication in good faith, and thus the match has now been lit and coming near the gasoline. Yeah, and not only that, but apparently through the court case, it was also determined that Purdue had known that patients were able to crush up the OxyContin and ingest it other ways to basically bypass the extended release portion of the medication. So they were getting substantially higher on it and didn't mention anything about that either. So, misrepresenting the risk of addiction proved costly for Purdue. On May 10th, 2007, Purdue, along with three company executives, pled guilty to criminal charges of misbranding OxyContin by claiming that it was less addictive and less subject to abuse and diversion than other opioids and had to pay $634 million in fines. That's a that's more than I have in my piggy bank. I'm just going to throw that out there. Right. You know, like my change jar? Yeah, I don't have that much, so that probably hurt. Like you said, I think that it did start out with providers who had good intentions of trying to help patients with pain, but and being told that this was less addictive, they kind of bought into that and unfortunately kind of, like you said, kind of helped light the fire to the fuel. I love lighting fire to my fuel. I mean, yeah, sometimes I add the fuel to my fire, but sometimes I just I just put that fire right in the fuel like either way around. It's going to happen. Either way, it works, asshole. (laughs) Yes. Either way, there's a deadly explosion. Thank you very much. See you later. Now, I going back to the things we've covered and the thing we're about to discuss, I I also think it's hard to completely blame this on healthcare, though we're going to take the the brunt of it, that somehow we have precipitated this when so far the healthcare provider has been the smallest, least significant cog in the wheel that has been turning so far. I just, I'm not saying we are without blame. I just, so far, it's like, wow, we were just, we were in a losing position no matter what. Well, and it's not going to get any better. (laughs) So that's the... That is these three portions. The last one and the one that we'll probably spend more time on because it, whew. the last one is patient satisfaction. So in 2001, the Institute of Medicine, in their article, Crossing the Quality Chasm, a new health system for the 21st century, stated that the U.S. delivery system does not provide consistent, high-quality medical care to all people. So the recommendation was to Im- called for improvement in six areas, safety, effectiveness, patient-centeredness, timeliness, efficiency, and equitableness. Because of this Institute of Medicine article, Congress directed CMS and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to create HCAP scores. HCAPS is the hospital consumer of healthcare providers and systems. So when you're wondering why you hear people always talk about that in the hospital setting, that's why. They have to, and they have to kind of go over that information, or I, I believe they have to at least provide that information if it's requested on HCAP scores. Yeah, no, it's actually, you can look it up online. You, know, it's, you can see your your hospital, how they rank on HCAPs. So HCAPs are a survey that are given to patients, and ideally they're supposed to be randomized, and they're supposed to, my understanding, and if I'm wrong and someone knows better, then please let me know, but my understanding is they're supposed to weed out you know, mental health patients or you know patients who may not be of the right mind to adequately address a survey. However, the surveys happened, and then in 2005, the Deficit Reduction Act required hospitals to participate in HCAP surveys. Basically, hospitals would incur a 2% penalty for non-submission of their HCAP scores by 2010. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010 expanded the role of patient satisfaction as a payment incentive. So, you know, the better HCAP scores were, the better uh, your hospital would be reimbursed. What could be wrong with that? That's literally exactly what I was going to say. What (laughs) possible problems can come from telling overworked medical providers that if they don't do well and make everybody happy, something bad was going to happen? Geez, I wonder what the next outcome could possibly be. So basically what happened is we started, I say we, we as in healthcare providers, started 
treating scores more than treating patients to an extent, and that's never a good place to be. A family physician, Dr. William Sonnenberg, was quoted in an article saying, and I found this to be really interesting, that's why I wanted to include it, the mandate is simple. Never deny a request for an antibiotic, an opioid pain medication, a scan, or an admission. He believes that Presgany, or HCAP scores, has become a bigger threat to the practice of good medicine than trial lawyers. And that is saying something. When you can get somebody to say to a physician, there is something that is more detrimental to your possible future as a provider than a trial lawyer. Like, I just hope that's sinking in right now. Several other articles, there was a Forbes article that concluded that giving patients exactly what they want versus what the doctor thinks is right can be very bad medicine. There are a few other things that I found in relation to this. And I will say, I'm going to preface this with, there are newer articles out that say that the opioid epidemic and prescribing pain medication is not tied to HCAP scores. Several of those I found on the Press Ganey website themselves, which I think, you know... I don't know that you conflict. Yes, thank you. I so I just want to make sure I'm clear. So if anybody else wasn't, so companies like Prescani publish articles about companies like Prescani saying it's not Prescani's fault. Is that is that pretty much what I just heard? To an extent, yeah. We'll, we'll leave it at that. In a recent online survey of 700 plus ER physicians by Emergency Physicians Monthly, 59% admitted they'd increase the number of tests they performed because of patient satisfaction surveys. The South Carolina Medical Association asked its members whether they had ever ordered a test they felt was inappropriate. 55% said yes, and nearly half said they'd either improperly prescribed antibiotics or narcotic pain medication in direct response to patient satisfaction surveys. The other one that I found most interesting was there are stories, and I don't have anything confirmed as far as where it is or anything along those lines or where it was, but there is lore of at least one emergency room with poor survey scores offering hydrocodone goodie bags to discharge patients to improve their ratings on the age cap scores. Now, I love a good conspiracy theory, though I don't believe them, and generally I dismiss them. The scary part is it's hard for me to dismiss this one based on everything that we've learned, everything that we've seen. These people are being pushed into a corner and telling, you know, being told if they do not improve scores, you know, their very job depends on it. What did what did they think the inevitable outcome was going to become? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those where I think it was you had, something looked really good on paper. And then when you put it into, you know, actual people, it doesn't work out in there as well. So, Ben, I'm just going to briefly summarize what I think I've heard so far. I, I just want you to tell me if what I've what I heard so far is correct, because we're coming up on a, the end of the episode. So let's just make sure we're clear. All right. You ready? Yep. So basically, opium's always been a problem. Since 3000 BC. Yeah. OK. So then fast forward <laughs> to now during that. Well, I shouldn't say fast forward all the way to the time. So 3,400 BC, yeah, opium's a thing. And then over time, we figured out a way to make it even more concentrated and more dangerous. And then when television is around in 1969, we start telling people, hey, you need drugs to make yourself feel better. And then <laughs> we started lying to prescribers, or there were lies, I should say, were being told to prescribers that, hey, you can really help your patient and it's not going to hurt them. And then those prescribers are being told, now you have to start using a subjective measure that can easily be lied to you in the form of a fifth vital sign that you now have to account for, even though you don't think you need to. But then we are being told that if somebody doesn't like what we're doing or how we're doing it, even if it's in their best interest, we're going to be punished for it. Is that pretty much what I just heard? The customer is always right, according to the HCAP scores. But yes. Well, no, they're not. That's a very good sign of what we talked about tonight. And again, I would like to say, you know, that we're not saying that there's not patients out there that do require chronic pain medication. We're not saying that there are not prescribers that are out there prescribing it appropriately. We're just looking at how we as a country have went from where we were to where we currently are. Yes. Again, I know I was a little, well, sarcastic in my summary there. And that was on purpose because it just makes me angry when we review all this and you see what has led up to, we haven't even talked about what's currently going on. We just talked about how we think we got here. Right. And it's, 
It's like, wow, so you threw punch bowl full of shit into a hot tub and you expected a good outcome. Like, that's what I feel like we just watched. <laughs> a punch bowl full of shit into a hot tub and expected chicken soup. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's not going to happen. I, I don't know. And I can understand. I can honestly understand some of the stuff over time. I, I understand money probably played a part, but the guys in 1969 probably never could have foreseen, or at least they weren't actively foreseeing, drugs like the Oxycontin being put out there and stuff like that. But I can see us being lied to. And then when we know there's dangerous drugs, because remember, I, I want people to, to think about this on the timeline, Jayco telling us we have to assess this vital sign is also at the height of when Oxycontin is being out there being pushed. So we're being told we have to assess this and we have to treat it. And now we have people pushing multiple medications saying we have to use this because it's the best for our patient. I, I, it, it was a disaster. It was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. That thing, that was what I was going to kind of end with was, yeah, it was just a, a perfect storm of elements that all came together at one time and has got us to kind of where we're at now. Yes. And honestly, the icing on this cake is the pre the the reimbursement, which is so stupid. I mean, again, it's one of those things that possibly sounded really good on paper, but it's so stupid and it puts hospitals and medical providers in such a place that is unprofessional. It's unimaginable to think that this is even still a thing, let alone I'm sure there's somebody out there trying to figure out a way to make it even more worse for us in the, the healthcare field. So we have all these problems, and then you then you add on top of it, oh, by the way, here's another problem. I would not be surprised, and this is just me pontificating the future. Look at that big word, Tom. You like that? I was going to say spitballing, but sure, pontificating <laughs> works. I wouldn't be surprised to see like insurance companies start looking at age cap scores and tying reimbursement back to that as well. Saying, oh, well. Don't give them ideas. I'm not. I think that's probably coming down the pipe closer than you realize. That's just my speculation i don't know anything specifically as far as that goes and that has got to stop like the insanity has to end somewhere and i hope it ends soon and maybe maybe congress will go whoa 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 <laughs> you, you don't get to start doing that you don't get to make bad decisions only we get to make make bad decisions i don't know what's going to happen but well, I think it, we'll discuss that in the next episode of Just Some Podcast. I agree. And I was just about to get wound up again, so I'm glad you said that. So, Ben, I, I think we're at a good stopping point. I think if we don't stop, if we don't stop, there's going to be a rant, and it's going to be a long one. So why don't we, why don't we just, you know, chill out? So if you're listening to this episode and you have questions or you have comments, get a hold of us on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. The website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email admin at justsomepodcast.com. Please give us some reviews. Let us know how we're doing. Even if it's one star, just let me know why. And then if you're going to do any shopping on Amazon, go ahead and click on our affiliate link on Just Some Podcast webpage. It'll take you to the website and then you can shop for free or not for free. Sorry. <laughs> Using the link will not cost you anything. You will still have to pay Amazon. So let's not <laughs> let's not get that on me. But it's free to use the link. It helps out the show, and we would truly appreciate it. Yeah, we are not we are not putting the bill for people shopping on Amazon. Let's just clarify that it is not free. Amazon will probably send hitmen after me right now. They're probably listening as we're talking. Make sure everybody wants to tune in to next week's episode where we're going to talk about kind of where we're at now and hopefully how we can help to get out of this in the future of this epidemic. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really good one. We, we've kind of discussed leading up to now and then the treatment and future treatment options that we're going to have for patients. And if you're a patient listening to us, what you can expect. Yeah, and I, we do have a question on our Instagram, and it's more about treatment options, so we'll discuss that next week. But otherwise, this has been... Have a great week. This is Tom. Everybody stay safe. <laughs>